This podcast proudly brought to you by Moss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium, non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Brandon, the creator and owner of Boss Shot Shells. And yes, I've actually been up there to the plant um, where they make the Boss Shot Shells and met Brandon personally personally before this. And he's an awesome guy, uh, American patriot as well. Everything he does is American made um, and he's a huge advocate for that. We're also proud to announce that Ellie and I and the Duck Gun Podcast will be partnering with Boss Shot Shells. So freaking stoked to bring you guys this partnership um, and be talking about their shells. So I'm going to drop a direct link down in the show notes. Make sure to check them out. Um, like I said, honestly, going to be some of the best shells on the market coming out next season. And you don't want to you don't want to miss out on them. So um, without further ado, quick word from our partners and we'll jump right into the podcast. Hi, this is Killian Bailey from Bailey's Game Calls. I'm here to tell you about our duck, goose, and wood duck calls. We use 3D printing technology to revolutionize the industry. This new technology allows us to create calls with the same sound as wood, acrylic, or anything in between that's at a fraction of the price. Make sure to check out baileysgamecalls.com for your next game call. Next, we'd like to give a big thanks to our partners at White Rock Decoys. Be a nomad and get out further with their system of windsocks and silhouettes. Use discount code DUCKGUNPOD at checkout for 10% off your next order at WhiteRockDecoys.com. How you doing tonight, Elliot? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm excited about the guest that we have on this evening because, you know, you and I always talk about um, choke tubes and ballistics and and that kind of stuff. So this is the first person we've on that's kind of, that's kind of an expert in that area that we can kind of pick his brain about. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. I'm definitely excited about this one. Um, not to mention that, but we're uh, going to be partnering with him this season. So um, it's going to be great. But before we jump into the content real quick, I got a quick story about Chief. <laughs> So, you know a little bit about it already. I text you. Yeah. I didn't tell you till about two days in, and I literally was had lost all hope. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible feeling. Oh my gosh. I, I thought I really thought I was never going to see him again. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, let's start at the beginning of the story. Um, I put Chief out Friday night. Go to the bathroom. So, for the most part, nowadays chief's a house dog but he uh gets put out to go to the bathroom and stuff like that so i put him out to go to the bathroom um left him out there for a good little while and come back you know maybe 45 minutes later and he's just gone and now you left like, you left him out it's it, yeah okay, okay so there's there's it's a long story so i'm gonna <laughs> i'll keep it brief 
go through the details. But so I, he got off the chain. Don't know how. Everything looked fine. His collar's still on. Um, the chain's not broken. I'm like, what the heck? How'd he get off? So anyways, he got off. And um, this is like 12 o'clock at night, 1245, something like that. I don't know. It, somewhere between like midnight and one o'clock in the morning. So I just go looking for Chief. And um, I had to look for him that night and the morning before because I had to leave for the waterfowl show um, in Michigan. So what time are you leaving? I looked for him. What time did you have to leave? I had to, I had to leave it. Um, I had to get up at seven in the morning and leave by eight. So go looking for him. And I'm driving everywhere, just driving up and down country roads. I don't see nothing. I don't see nothing. Keep looking for him. Can't find nothing. And it's three o'clock. So I come back home <laughs> and, um, and then I just go to bed. Cause I'm, what am I going to do at that point? So two hours, uh, you were looking for him anywhere. for a couple hours solid. Yeah. Cause I knew like if I had, I couldn't find him. So then I got up early and drove around again in the morning and still couldn't find him. And so I'm just like, well, he's going to show up at one of the places he normally does, hopefully. Like, um, And so it kind of just put me in a weird spot because I'm like, do I just stay home or do I go to the show? Like a lot of the responsibility of the show is on me. Like I booked it. I booked the hotels. I have like all the paperwork and no one, everything's happening. <laughs> so it's like I kind of have to go. So <laughs> um, end up going. And just like super down and super out of it. Hunter's like, are you going to be like this the whole time? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah, my dog's gone. <laughs> yeah. I care more about him than I do you, Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so we get um, not too far down the road. Um, and my wife, I can't remember. She had to do something in town. Um, and she's driving by a house and she sees that uh the humane society's there so she pulls up in the driveway driveway there sure enough chief is there he's loaded up in their truck and so once he's loaded up in the truck they have to take him to the humane society so they took him all the way out there which actually ended up being a good thing because then they asked if i wanted to get him chipped and i said uh yeah we'll get him chipped or whatever because he has this issue he just wants to get out he wants to run he wants to explore, and he's got it bad. I don't know why. Hold on, I'm I'm, lo- I'm lost. Where did you find him in the humane? Go back to that part. I, I I'm lost. Okay. So my wife went into town. So he had ran. I mean, it was like over a mile, and someone had found Chief and kept him at their house. Okay. And the humane society came to pick him up. And there. she just saw the humane society truck. Just. Yeah, she just randomly drove by this this house in town and saw humane society was there. And, and so just stopped to see if they're picking well, up. That was chief. lucky. Yeah, I was really lucky. And so I couldn't believe, honestly, I couldn't believe how lucky we were. Like I got this huge sigh of relief. We're on our way to the show and now I can like enjoy it. Um, not be stressed the whole time. And so I'm like, Oh, what a relief. We got chief back. And so, you know, get to the show, all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, everything's set up and we're talking to people, all that kind of stuff. And I get, get a text. And it says Chief's gone again, and I'm like, "You gotta be kidding me!" Unbelievable. I thought, see, I was, I was getting confused. I was like, "I thought you said he was gone for two days." <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So no, he was he was gone for a day. He was home for oh, five hours, <laughs> and then yeah. So now he's gone again. What a jerk! And I know. So it's like, I don't know. He just. I don't, I have no, I still don't know how he got off. It's like, so he has, um, she just put him out to pee. She's like, literally, I walked away from the window to lay 
uh, our daughter down for a nap and walked back and he was gone. Well, I can tell you exactly <laughs> what happened. He went out the first time, found some honeys. And he was going back for more. <laughs> he, he could have. But the thing is, I don't know how he got off. So it has one of those um, wires with a clasp and says like the spring clasp. And it works fine. Like I, ch- I checked it. It's fine. I still don't know how he got off. Well, I know about, about half, even a like year, if, half a year. You're going to drive around town. You're going to see some little puppy in the, someone's yard. And you're like, that looks like Chief. <laughs> yeah. So. Anyways, he was gone again. And so I made like a Facebook post. Honestly, I was his like Facebook post um, <laughs> practically went viral. It had like 650 shares and everybody in the town's trying to find Chief. And, <laughs> and uh, he's just gone having fun by himself. And <laughs> so he was gone um, the whole time I was worried. And then, you know, I just kept thinking, well, the Humane Society is closed. Um, it's Saturday, Sunday, it's closed. So he's going to be at the Humane Society, but I have to wait till Monday at nine. And so that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for that. That's the only thing that had me like hope. Cause I, you know, I drove, when I got home from the show, I'm driving around, Heather drove around, my dad drove around, everybody's trying to find him. And, uh, and, uh, we just weren't able to find him. So yeah, to make, uh, I guess a long story short, um, I go there at nine and he is not there. And so I kind of lost hope at that point. I come back home. I'm like all down and I'm like, I'm never going to see chief again. And then, <laughs> then the humane society called me back and he ended up, he was at a horse farm for pretty much the two days. They found him Saturday night. It was raining, all that kind of stuff. And they just kept him there. And so, um, once they, once the vet opened up in the morning, they took him to the vet, they scanned the chip, and then they're able to contact me. So, moral of the story, chips work. I'm getting contact information on Chief's collar from now on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's back home and he's yeah, grounded. <laughs> what a jerk, man. That's awful. <laughs> yeah. I had a dog one so. time, uh, my, my first hunting dog for Izzy. Um, I raised her for about the first couple years of her life in an apartment. And then I moved about five, six, seven miles other side of town. And somehow she got out at night. And I didn't know she was out and it was a huge lightning and thunderstorm. And I didn't even realize she was gone until the morning. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what, where in the world is this dog? We looked all over everywhere. I, I had to go to work and everything. And then finally the end of the next day, uh, my wife at the time was like, oh, man, I'm just going to go check out the old place where you lived. Drove over there, and there she was. She'd made it across town like six, seven miles to where I, where I had raised her as a puppy. It's like, yeah, I mean, oh, that wow. is crazy intelligence that some, some kind of homing device just led her home, and we found her over there. Um, that was crazy. That's a terrible feeling when you can't find your dog. Terrible yeah. feeling. All right. Well, I think now is probably a good point to go ahead and bring our guest in. What's going on, folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host alongside me, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, also known as Graybeard. And our guest for tonight is Brandon from Boss Shot Shell. How you doing tonight, Brandon? We're hanging in, you fellas. Doing good. 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 So, what have you uh, been up to now that we're in the off season? You, you got your season all finished up, and 
Yeah, we're still filling some orders for the guys that want to buy their their shot shuck season, which is kind of cool. It keeps keeps things going. A couple orders a day. Uh, we got Boss Tom, which are the turkey loads that were shipping pretty steadily. And truth be told, man, I mean, we can crank out those tungsten shells and they sell in a lot lower volume than the, the duck shells do. So I got a little bit of time on my hand and I'm uh, working through getting ready for next duck season with some mud motors. So I've been tearing apart little Briggs and Stratton and, uh, oh shoot, the Predator motors from Harbor Freight and throwing different crankshafts in them and getting them tuned up and throwing them on my little John boat, testing them and trying to get like 20 some horsepower out of the, uh, the six and a half horse motor. So we're, we're having a good old time with that. Awesome. Getting me thinking of fall already. So, but yeah, um, not, what's that? I'm sorry, man. I, my audio cut out for a second. I couldn't hear the first part of what you were saying. Can you tell, can you say again what you're saying about the motors and what you're doing with those? Oh, is that, mud motors? Is that a, yeah, is that just something you're goofing around with, or is that? Yeah, a yeah, no, we're we're goofing around with, with it. I got a, a buddy Jake Powell at PPF Mud Motors out in Minnesota, and uh, I just love his product. He's got this slick little little mud motor that you put a either a Honda, a Briggs, or a Predator six and a half horse on, and the whole thing weighs like, man, I don't think it'll even weighs fifty pounds total. It might weigh fifty pounds after the motor. Yeah. The motor oh, weighs yeah. like 30. It maybe it's if it's 50 pounds or if it's it's right in there. I mean, it's not heavy at all. And you can drop this thing on your boat in probably five seconds. You put in a cotter pin and away you roll. Mm -hmm. So they're really cool. They can, you know, move a 12, like a tw 10, 12, or maybe like a four. My buddy's got a 1436 that he runs on his. And uh you know, I guess the, the dominant male ego always shows its ugly head and, you know, going 10 miles an hour on the water is not fast enough. So <laughs> I got this, this bug up my ass to uh, try to hot rod one of these things. So I think now I've built one, two, three, four of these motors, and I've got two more in the shop that I'm playing with. And, you know, one of them's just like, little carb tuning and exhaust work and you know the one i've got on my boat now has got a billet crank billet rod forged piston 12 to 1 compression big carburetor different timing different flywheel all kinds of stuff so it's it's ripping man it's almost too scary for a for a little john boat <laughs> with me in it so. <laughs> i bet i bet so now after uh, you get messed around with it is that, does that add any weight to it or is it still right at 50? no uh -uh, it's still a six and a half horse so that's the thing like Power to weight is is huge, especially if you got a portage of boat across any log jams, or if you gotta, you know, walk any distance or drag a boat any distance. Because the, the John boat weighs like I got a twelve forty low John, and that thing is like one hundred and five pounds. Mm -hmm. So one guy can easily throw it in the back of your pickup truck, so no trailer needed. The motor can rest on the boat or laid inside it. And you can launch these things wherever you can drag that boat. So if you're hunting, you know, shallow water or, you know, a, a lake where there's not a real legitimate boat launch, you can really get out in these places with those little motors. And they're just, they're slicker than hell. <laughs> yeah. Around, so, uh, around here, a uh, layout hunt, boat hunting is a huge thing. And a lot of guys 
um, will put long tails on them. But by the time they've got the rig and everything, it's so heavy, you can't drag it at all. And we've gone to like 80 pound kayaks, like Ascend H12s. And I've, I've yeah. always wondered if there's some little motor because we drag ours through the woods a lot where we, we want to go. We can't just dump it in a ditch. You know, we we drag them two, three, four hundred yards. Man, if I could yep. have a motor to put on that and still be able to drag it, that would be. Well, if you awesome. have two guys, if you have two guys and one guy could drag a boat, this thing, you could almost throw this motor over your shoulder mm -hmm. and, and hike with it. You know, like you're throwing your gun over your shoulder. It's wow. It's super cool. Super cool. Yeah, that's neat. Are you are you reselling these at all when you fix them up or just playing? No, I've got well, I got my partner Lee. We're getting him set up with one because he saw the video that I posted from us running up and down the river last week or last weekend. And uh he's like, dude, one of those things would be so cool on one of my boats. I could take up to Saskatchewan in the spring. So I went to Harbor Freight and I bought a and that that's the beauty of these this stuff. I mean, these motors are they're a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. you know, for the six and a half. And the unfortunate thing is, I mean, you guys know me, how made in America I am. So when I bought my first one, I had my option of getting a, a Briggs and Stratton, a Honda or a Predator. I'm like, well, I don't want any Chinese crap. So I'll take the Briggs and Stratton, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Jake's like, dude, you wouldn't believe this, but all three of those motors are made in China. Uh, <laughs> what? So I went Harbor Freight, hundred bucks. You end up putting in like anywhere from two hundred to six hundred dollars worth of parts into these things, and they go from six horsepower up to like, I think the the mild ones I did are probably like twelve to fifteen, and I bet mine's over twenty. Wow, I don't know if you've ever been to Kansas or not, or whether you've heard of Shine yep. Bottoms before, but man, that little rig you're talking about would just crush it at Shine Bottoms. Yeah. You know, and, and like a beaver the, tail or something like that, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the the uh motors that I did was for a kid who's been one of my really like almost like an adopted son of mine, but he's a freshman in college now and he worked this spring break here and he wanted to get in on the the mud motor thing and he didn't have the money to spend on on a PPF. So he bought one of those Chinese Thai motors or whatever they are. You know, they run in Thailand, a straight long tail. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel bad that he wasted a couple hundred bucks because really, I mean, they're, they're decent, but they're not great, especially compared to this little PPF unit. Um, so I built him up a motor and like you said, like I said, I did one for Lee. I did one for me. My son's got one that he's building himself. And then I bought a 13 horsepower one that we're going to try to make like 40 horsepower out of it wow. and run it on a prototype that Jake is currently in the process of building which will be a game changer once he gets that thing out in the market so we've got a a 4200 mud buddy yeah and with an 18 foot boat and then we will load our um 12 foot layout boats or kayaks onto it yep and then use that to transport it right um so if you're making that little thing 40 horse that <laughs> that's gonna be a absolute well, even with 20 i've i've got a black death what are they call it maybe like a black death 4500 yeah, yeah that's what we've my, got that's what we, that's what we've got yeah on my boat that i've made i built a kevlar and a kumi plywood duck boat a couple years back and we put that black death motor on it and i think that thing's making 48 or 49 horsepower and 
you know, you go from having probably that boat loaded, we're running 1800 pounds or so with 40 some horsepower. And then you go out and I'm up, I weigh what, 195 and then hundred in the, in the boat. So 295 plus the motor. So like 350 pounds max, right? 20 horsepower. That thing is a handful. And mind you, I mean, last weekend it was 34 degrees out. I threw my waders on and I'm ripping up and down the river. And when you go full throttle with this thing, it blows the prop out of the water and sends the boat into a power slide. And the first time it did that, I thought I was going to go swimming. Yeah. Scared the crap out of me. That's a lot of horsepower. Yeah. So that's, I was talking to Jake. I'm like, dude, we got to fix this. Why can't I keep this prop in the water? He's like, you know, I engineered these things to run on a six and a half horsepower yeah. stock motor. <laughs> this was never meant to be a hot rod item, you know? I yeah, kind of felt like, like you know, fix it. Stop hot rodding it. Yeah, Tim Taylor, we did the Binford treatment on it, you know? So where, oh, where can people great. find this video at? Is it on your Instagram? It's on my cell phone right now. I haven't done, I haven't really oh, okay. shared it with anyone yet, gotcha. but I'll probably make it out. I'll, I'll throw it up there somewhere, so. Yeah, or send it to us and we can put it on uh, Fellowship yeah. of the Duck Gun. I'm, I'm, waiting to, I'm waiting to really get it dialed in so you can see, but it's uh, it's something else. Wow. <laughs> Sounds awesome. like it. So before we get too far into this, uh, let's go kind of st- take a step back here and um, yeah. let people know who, who you are and what you got going on, Brandon. Well, I'm a... I'm a third generation, nobody from nowhere, really, you know, family business guy, um, grew up in a metal finishing company. My grandfather was a metal finisher. My dad was a metal finisher and here I am. And, uh, my dad loved goose hunting, um, before business and responsibilities of being a parent kind of took over. So he was never really a, a hunter from my memories because he was a diehard workaholic and and then when I was still a teenager, he lost his health and developed multiple sclerosis and really couldn't get out that much. But, you know, I think that that instinctive hunting prowess, you know, is very apparent in my DNA. And uh, I got to fall in love with the outdoors and never really had a group of guys that could you know, get me into hunting until I was in college. And my roommates, you know, set the hook for uh, for goose hunting. And that's been what is that now? 20 years? Yeah, almost 20 years, 18 years. And it's a passion of mine. And, you know, I, I got into this whole shot shell thing kind of out of a hobby um, to kind of, you know, allow my son and I to spend time in the outdoors. And if I had a legitimate business, you know, in the industry, I could use whatever profits the company generated uh, towards fueling my passion for buying decoys or boats or guns or whatever else and uh hooked up with a couple great dudes and this whole little hobby business um blew up and now it's consumed pretty much 90 percent of my bandwidth you know professionally wise at the company and uh it's just been it's been a real fun ride so far and we can't wait to see what's going to happen as this business continues to grow Awesome. Kind of touching on something you said there. I know the first time I met you, um, I heard a little bit about your story, but something you really cool that you told me, kind of the origins of Boss Shot Shell, um, you and your son going on those uh, um, trips out there. Uh, I oh, can't remember yeah. what outfitter. Uh, can you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. I, you know, my, my dad was a, a hunter before I was born, and he loved shooting 
uh, you know, trap and had his own reloader. And I remember seeing that thing in the basement when I was probably five or six years old. It was in his maintenance room in the basement of the house I was born in. And uh, I was always kind of intrigued by what that thing was all about. And as when we moved to a different home, I was old enough, you know, that whole loading bench and chair and loader went with, and I'm like, dad, what's this thing all about? He's like, well, that's what I used to reload shotgun shells with. I said, well, why don't you show me how to do it? And then maybe we can go shoot targets. So I was probably 12 then. And he taught me how to, how to go through it. And I would reload, you know, at that time I thought it was a lot. I would go knock out eight boxes of shotgun shells and thought that I had, you know, just done a, a week's worth of work. So that kind of got me into the whole, you know, loading aspect of, you know, the shot shell business. And when my son and I were going out to uh, shoot snows out in um, Arkansas, I wanted him to be able to shoot a 20 gauge shell that would carry a decent payload that he could actually have a good chance at, at killing something. Um, because a 410, you know, with a little guy, you don't have a lot of pellets there, and unless you're a, a crack shot with a 410, you're really not going to do too much outside, you know, 20 yards. So I went back, got the old loading manuals out, called a few people that that I met, and wanted to develop a low recoil youth 20 gauge load. And at while I was at it, I loaded up um, some shells for myself on that same press that my dad had in the basement that was mounted on the same table that I remember from a little kid sitting in the same chair that my dad used to use. So it kind of, it kind of took me back to my childhood, made me you know, remember, remember my dad that he's been gone now going on 10 years. So it was always kind of, you know, just a, a passionate, a passion thing for me. And I'm a passionate guy and I'm kind of nostalgic and, you know, it, it just brought back a lot of good memories. So I load up all of our shells. We go to Arkansas and the outfit, we were hunting, hunting with at Northern Skies were wondering what in the heck I was shooting because everything on my side of the line was dropping and they were noticing that they were getting littered with cardboard and you know uh, pieces of felt and all kinds of crap and I showed them the loads and they were loading a clear hull and it had all kinds of felt fiber spacers and they were just really pretty looking and I said hey you can run some if you want and they're like hell no I'm not going to run no hand loads I thought, all right, you know, no big deal. So at the end of the trip, the guy said, hey, you know, on second thought, why don't you leave some of them shells with, with us and we'll we'll run through them. So I figure, shit, man, it's March. I'm not going to be shooting anything until September, so take the rest of what I got. So fast forward almost a year ago to the day where we are now. Back in Arkansas, same outfitter, same guides, and they said, hey, man, do you have those shells that that you brought with you? last year. I said, yeah, I did. And I, I thought you guys would probably like them and I brought enough for everyone. They're like, those things are unbelievably good. So I got to think, I'm like, man, you know, this could be really cool. I got, I got a nice youth load. My son loves the outdoors. I'm looking for a tax write-off. So let's, let's try to make a business of this. So I talked to, um, uh, Matt at Northern Skies, who ended up turning me on to a guy that was going to be crossing the border into Canada named Corey Loeffler from DRC Calls. And I was supposed to mail Corey some shells for them to take up to Canada. And Corey told me I need to talk to this guy named Lee. 
So I call Lee, not knowing who the heck he was, and then come to find out he's like the godfather of the waterfowling community when it comes to marketing and photography. And that would have been like, oh, shoot, May, I think, by the time Lee and I finally got together. And we formed this business in June and spent all kinds of time like finishing the initial load offerings and trying to build a website and build some social media and name the company and all that stuff. And we finally launched in middle of yeah, mid October last year. So yeah, that's kind of the short version of the long story. Awesome. It's funny how social media impacts this stuff because there's certain companies that just kind of feel like they're blowing up or going viral a little bit and, um, like dive bond decoys, you see them everywhere. And I don't, it was pretty late in the season when I started seeing your products. And then I saw them once and I saw them twice. And all of a sudden it's just like, I I'm seeing it a lot of different places. So well, you must be doing, you must be doing and, something right. And the thing is like, everyone always talks about how, you know, print is dead and, you know, people don't shop, you know, everything, you know, they don't shop in stores anymore. And, you know, they, they get all their information online and this and that. And I thought that that's, I took that at face value, right? Not, you know, being involved in a, a business to business industry my entire life where we don't deal with the public. I kind of, all right, sure. Yeah. That's, that seems plausible, but uh, little did I know that, you know, like social media, we, we've developed our, our social media presence organically because being in the ammunition and gun related business, we're not allowed to promote or boost any of our content. So what you see when you go on our social media pages and see, you know, we've got like, I don't know, just over 8,000 followers or they're about, you know, those are all organically generated. So a lot of that is, you know, word of mouth, believe it or not, I think. Mm. And that drives them to social media. Um, but social media is in my, if you ask me now, you know, six months after diving into this, I think social media is important, um, but it's definitely not the end all be all for everything. It's kind of like a, a three-legged bar stool, you know, the social media is one of those legs. Without it, you know, the stool isn't stable and can't stand up. Um, but is it 90% of how our information is gotten out there? I think at this point now it is yes, but it's it will be to a lesser and lesser degree as time goes on, only because the number one way of of distributing information is through friends and family and word of mouth. And that's what is important for our growth. And I think our customer service and having that connection with our consumers helps spread the word way faster than, hey, I saw these shells in a big box store and you ought to give them a try. You can see them at your local retailer. No, that ain't it. You know, we've got, I would say on average, 30 to 50% of our customers call the shop before they place an order for the first time. And I would say about 30% of those customers that have ordered with us call us on a regular basis. A lot of times, not even to buy anything. They just want to bullshit with us. So I think that's great. I think that's awesome. Awesome. So uh, with uh, Boss Shot Shell, 
one thing yep. you kind of stress always is made in America. So, uh, what's your, what's your, uh, thought on that? Okay. I can tell you that I, our business has always been predominantly automotive. Um, we grew, we live in an area where there's a lot of talent when it comes to the tooling side of things, predominantly in the die cast and foundry industry. So like parts on your car, whether it's like a water pump, an engine block, a cylinder head, um, miscellaneous bracketry, any of that stuff that's made out of aluminum, there's a good chance that a lot of that content, whether it's tooling, engineering, or what have you, came from our section of the state. So it's always been, you know, a group of like hardworking, blue collar, you know, gritty dudes that have like knew their trade, a skilled trade. So like machinists and tool makers and, you know, really passionate, hardworking people that would take a blueprint or something that doesn't even exist and turn it into something with their hands. So when I was in college growing up, we started seeing a lot of our business customers, you know, the, the customer base changed because a lot of these companies were driven out of business through um, cheaper sourcing of, you know, components to, well, for, you know, some of it was Canada, then it went to Mexico and then China. So I've got this, this uh, connection with like the American blue collar worker. And I feel that I'm very much in that blue collar, you know, mentality and lifestyle. I'm a blue collar dude. I may get grease under my fingernails as we speak. And there's a sense of loyalty that goes with it because, you know, the, this whole thing of, you know, make stuff overseas and bring it over here and sell it for cheaper is complete bullshit because what I think happens is these companies and corporations are profiting, maximizing their profit by saying that it's too expensive to have stuff made in the U.S. And again, I said it's bullshit and it really is because we're being able to deliver an American manufactured shotgun shell. Now, our hulls come from Italy, but the powder is made here in the U.S. Our shot is made in our plant. We're using American labor to assemble these components and deliver a higher quality product for less cost than what our competition you know, will sell their product to retailers and distributors for. So I, I kind of wanted to, to prove that theory wrong. And even though it's shotgun shells, if we can do it and deliver an American made product for less money um, and have a viable business, I don't see why that can't resonate with other people in different industries throughout the country and get more people moving in that direction. So that's, that's kind of my whole American made thing. And, you know, I, I buy American products as often as I can, you know, expense notwithstanding. I mean, there's, there's, I don't care what you're looking for. Nine times out of 10, you can buy an American version of whatever that product is for not a significantly amount, you know, larger amount of money, like denim jeans, you know, back in January, I got obsessed over this whole denim jean thing. And I did some research and found a really cool small company making jeans in Chicago by hand using American made denim for like 50 bucks a pair. I'm like, shit, man, 50 bucks for a pair of jeans, American made, I'll spend that. So I started looking and 
there's five, <coughs> excuse me, there's 500 denim mills in the world. Of those, well, I'll ask you guys, if there's 500 denim mills in the world, how many do you think of those 500 are in the U.S.? I'd say one. <laughs> I'd say certainly less than 50. Yeah, there's two. Wow. Now, even more staggering and more alarming is in North America, so let's throw Mexico, Central America, El Salvador, all those countries in it, there's nine, okay? Mm-hmm. So we've got five over 500, so let's just say it's 500. You've got nine, round up 10, denim mills in North America. Over 350 of them are in China, and a hundred in that balance, whatever it is, 140 or so, are in Asia, India. So it's it's a problem, right? So I took this deep dive and kind of started looking, and you know, it it really started resonating with me. It's like you know, we got to do something to change this because if we keep on running manufacturers out of not manufacturers, but American companies out of business based on cheap, cheap, cheap. Um, no one's going to be able to afford buying our shotgun shells or anything for that matter. And I really take issue with like big business because they sell us this line of we can't compete. Labor's too expensive. Labor's too expensive. But again, we've you know disproven that that it's not so much labor being too expensive. It's I can't make as much money, or we can't de- deliver as much equity to our shareholders as we could if we were to outsource. So it's an extremely self-centered, short-sighted view to try to maximize profits at the expense of alienating your customer base. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Very, very well said and awesome. And I yeah. I think uh, we definitely need to see more and more uh, companies going along that line. So definitely something I can get behind on that. Yeah. And and I guess the, the direct model is... I know why we did that was sensing the competition, the way these big box retailers play the game. And I hate to throw the mom and pop and independent retail guys into that basket or that group, but you got a store that, you know, you go to your big box outdoor outfitter store and you go up and down the aisle where all the shotgun shells are. There's no empty spaces in those aisles. They're all full of all the different brands and types of shotgun shells. So if we had like what we know is to be one of the best bang for your buck shotgun shells on the market, and even cost notwithstanding, I think, you know, in order to have a shell that would rival or even be greater than (coughs) our bismuth load, you'd probably have to spend double or triple the amount of money in like a tungsten-based alloy. But anyway, all those shelves are full. So if we were to go to Mr. Big Box Retailer and say, hey, you know, my name is Brandon Sarecki. I'm from Boss Shot Shelves. We're, you know, an American-made, brand-new upstart business. We want to have our product on your shelf. First off, it's going to say, well, I want it cheap. And second of all, what's going to happen is we're not going to hardly get any shelf space on that retailer shelf. Because what will happen is they're going to go to – company X or company Y and say, Hey, I've got this guy that wants some shelf space. So it's got to come from you or it's got to come from you. And what are you going to do to make sure that I don't pull your product off the shelves to put this guy's in? So 
where I'm going with this is none of the decisions that go into the business side of the equation at these big box retailers has the end customer in mind. They're thinking about their margins and how they can squeeze more from their suppliers. So instead of trying to play that game, I figure we just have fun with it and sell direct to our consumers, even if it means us having a slower selling cycle or our business growing at a more, I guess, a slower rate because we don't have that saturation. But I knew it was the right way to go. And here we are six, eight months into this whole thing. And I'm, I still think that it's the right way to do things. Awesome. So I uh, kind of jump into, um, I guess the, the actual shot shell itself. Um, what, what all went into the design of it and, you know, your choice to go with bismuth, um, as your material and all that. Well, I love tinkering with things. Like I said earlier, you know, playing with boat motors or working on airplanes or whatever it is. I always got to be into something. And anybody that knows me knows that I don't just like kind of dabble in anything. If I'm going to go into something, I go in head first, like all the way and 90% of the time, probably a little bit too much. And I've got a little touch of OCD where as I sit here and look at my desk, it looks like I'm a complete slob, <laughs> but I've got, I obsess over things. So like, I obsess over these shotgun shells. So I would say from June until October, I had like laser focus on developing the best shotgun shell that we could and deliver it for the best price possible. So I didn't really think of like scaling. Honestly, I thought if we sold like 50,000 shotgun shells a year, it'd be enough for me to cover my expenses and go on a couple hunting trips and just have a good time. And, you know, now I'm sitting on over a million shotgun shells <clears throat> that need to be loaded in my warehouse with more stuff on the way. So my, it kind of blew up in my own face. And that's kind of one of the nice things about this business is usually in other businesses I've started and businesses I run, I always know where the company is going. And this thing has blown up on I guess sheer accident in such a positive way that it's even shocked me and has really like amped me up and forced me to be even more in tune and more involved and more OCD about every aspect of the manufacturing of these shells. So where it starts out is these bismuth loads are not far off from like one of my tried and true hand load recipes. So we're taking like hand load components and running them through a semi-automatic mass production method that we're able to crank out anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 shells an hour, depending on the line we run them down. But the, you know, my manufacturing background, you know, like the reliability of the process and repeatability from powder charges to shot charges to pressures and velocities is so stinking close that I couldn't even do it by hand loading these things through like an old school, you know, mech press or anything like that. <clears throat> so it's like a really, really good shell. And, you know, I thought that, you know, you have to have really good powders. Um, 
I've had experiences in the past and, you know, weather gets cold and, you know, powders burn dirty. And I always thought that it was like, well, it's just because it's a shell or that's the way that powder burns. And you start diving into these things and you start learning why certain shells behave certain ways. And like one of them is, you know, operating pressure and, you know, temperature, ambient temperature, where powders become harder to light, the colder the weather gets outside. And that's just the physics of nitrocellulose and nitroglycerin, which are the two main components in gunpowder. They even like a 30 degree temperature fluctuation, like from 70 Fahrenheit down to 40 is enough to slow that burn rate down significantly. And as your powder is burning slower, it is creating less pressure, which affects the velocity. So when we designed our loads, I'm like, okay, well, are there any powders that don't drop off as much? And what I learned is, you know, your faster powders will burn. They still slow down, but it's a percentage. So like if you say the powder burns 10% slower, well, 10% of a fast number is still a fast number, whereas 10% of a slow number is a bigger number, mm-hmm. bigger fall off anyway. So we decided to build these shells. They would work really, really well in cold weather, still burn clean, still get good velocity. So one of the things you run into is like this max pressure thing. And I'm working my way through pressures um, and my issues I have with the way these things are regulated. But working within that band of like what is acceptable in the industry and what's acceptable to me are apples and grapefruit. So (laughs) we said we're going to have the best cold weather performance of any shot shell on the market. So we do that. But one of the things we lose is top line velocity. So the guy that's used to shooting like a, you know, 1600, 1700 or 1550 foot per second shell (coughs) isn't going to see that number and it may scare them away from our product. But one of the things we've done is by being engaged direct to consumer when people pick up the phone and call us or through social media or podcast, we can get that word out there and kind of educate these people and start telling them, you know, what happens when their shell doesn't burn properly or why their eyes sting when it's late goose season and you know they can see powder coming out of the gun when you know the shell's ejecting and that whole thing so it starts this really good dialogue where everyone learns a little bit about the shells they're running what regardless of brand they learn a little bit about our company and then we can have you know engaged dialogue talking about something that you know, if you're on the phone talking to me, we're talking about duck hunting and you know, that's something that everyone's passionate about that, you know, we're, we talk to. So kind of on that line, before we move on from it, um, with velocity slowing down, have you guys done uh, any testing to see the rates of drop off with competitors? Yes. Stupid amounts of testing. And like I said, I'm kind of a, I get OCD and I'm a little geeky when it comes to like data and i I've got a finance degree and I'm, I'm a blue collar dude that owns, you know, a couple businesses, but I've got a mind of an engineer when it comes to like math and diving into like all things mechanical. And I look at a shotgun shell, no different than I do a small gas engine or whatever we're working on. I mean, it's a process. There's physics that go involved in everything and looking at like density of shot, you know, uh, versus velocity, drag coefficients and, you know, wind drift, all that. I mean, I've crunched all kinds of numbers and it's kind of, kind of interesting to see that like 
if you're shooting steel shot, I don't care what steel it is, you're going to lose about 150 feet of velocity within the first five feet of that shot leaving the muzzle of the barrel. So your load that is going like, say the book number is 1500. <clears throat> when you run it through a chronograph at 10 feet, it's showing, I wish I had the number in front of me, but it's showing somewhere around like 1250 to 1300 at the most. So at first I thought, man, these shot shell manufacturers are lying to us. They're not even making that velocity. Well, they are and they aren't. I think if you check it at the muzzle, you you know, and we have, and it, it is a true number, but you start checking it further out, steel loses its velocity so quickly because it lacks density. And to get the weight up to be lethal, you have to run a larger pellet. And that larger pellet has way bigger cross-sectional area when you look at like the size or the hole that that pellet has to penetrate in the air to move. And it just slows down so rapidly. That's why you have to use bigger steel shot to carry the energy at distance. And when you have more pellets, you've got more or fewer pellets. You've got more air in your pattern and your probability of hitting that bird in the vitals and making a quick, clean kill are reduced drastically. So by running a denser pellet, you're getting that weight back or holding the weight the same, but you're creating a smaller hole through the air. So there's less drag on it. And because the density is up, it slows down less. So you're carrying like, I would say on paper, if you look just on paper alone, our number five boss carries the same energy as like a number three steel. But I would say at 40 yards, it hits about as hard as like a number one or number two steel, mm. only because that retained energy and the uniform full patterns and the the devastating effects it has by you know, multiple pellet hits in vital areas. That's so uh, paper is one thing where you can prove stuff out mathematically on paper. But what I really like seeing is results in the field. And truth be told, we developed the product line <coughs> results oriented performance oriented and then what i'm working on now in the downtime being that you know productions you know slowed up quite a bit because you don't need to produce the inventory for all of our orders i'm going back to spending time on excel spreadsheets and you know analyzing data and building graphs and charts and that whole thing so it's it's kind of cool to see like man this stuff looks like it hits this hard or it looks like i can do this or i am doing this and then to back it up on paper it's like this is one of those instances where what you see on paper and what you see in reality, the, the realistic picture is way cooler than what it does, what it shows on paper. So I, I started my duck hunting career the year after they, they uh, banned lead shot. Okay. So I know the whole process of all the old guys being so angry and our, our progression through steel. And my father actually started um, reloading himself because um, the market steel was so slow. We were just wounding birds like crazy. So yep. he, he started reloading. We got the speed up. We started seeing more kills and, and all of that. Um, so I, I'm, questions interesting to me is that just give me a little, little, what is the difference between lead steel, bismuth and tungsten? And is it just strictly 
weight and or is there more to it than that well when you look at it from a pellet perspective yes it's weight when you look at it from a shot shell perspective it's hardness of the shot because when you when you pull the trigger and that igniter or the firing pin ignites the primer you create that explosion and there's a resistance to movement inertia that every object has, whether it's a ball bearing or a car or a boulder, whatever it is. So what happens when that powder ignites, it creates the explosion, which generates an insane amount of pressure, like anywhere from 10 to 15,000 PSI for a brief instant, very quickly. So all that energy has to be distributed into whatever lies on top of it being your wad and your shot. So what happens with steel shot is it's super hard and does not want to move because it is a heavy object, relatively speaking. So it wants to push back against the powder that's burning and it creates that rise in pressure. Now, if we talk like lead or bismuth, that's softer, what happens when that powder ignites yeah, the shot doesn't want to move, but some of that energy is absorbed by the actual pellet. So the pellets will deform like lead shot always has and bismuth does. So it absorbs some of that energy and allows your pressure to not rise as quickly. So if you say, well, I want to move an ounce and a quarter load at 1,500 feet per second. I want to do it with steel and bismuth. That powder doesn't know that there is an ounce and a quarter of bismuth or an ounce and a quarter of tungsten or lead sitting above it, it just knows weight, right? Well, what happens if you take a powder that you manufacture for a steel shell versus a lead or bismuth shell, your powder, your pressures are gonna be insanely higher with the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> with the, uh, Give me one second. Yeah, go for it. This stuff is also fascinating to me because, I mean, with the transition from lead to steel, I didn't even hear about bismuth or tungsten for years. And then I kind of started hearing about those metals and I just had this like golden idea of them, but never actually used them. Super fascinating stuff. I've I've been fighting a sinus infection for two weeks. It's driving my whole family nuts. Not a problem. But anyway, so what happens if you use like a, a lead powder that burns faster with a steel shot, that pressure is going to jump up so fast. And that's where the early days of steel hunting came from is you couldn't get that high velocity because your pressures would be too, be too high. <coughs> so I guess we were asking like the difference between the steel and the lead and velocity. And velocity. What the industry's gone to, to get the lethality of steel up, you can move it faster. But when you move it faster, you have to use a slower burning powder and more of it. So you can create that acceleration over a longer period of time as the shot travels down the barrel. And what happens is, you know, larger amounts of powder are harder to ignite. So you've got to run a really hot primer and in cold weather, we all know that powders burn slower and the more powder you have, 
the slower it's going to burn overall, which is why you get a lot of shells that, you know, want to burn your eyes or your gun gets really dirty and gunked up in the late season and that whole thing. That's all a problem that is related to the limitations of, of steel. So with our bismuth loads, you know, we're loading these things just like lead was loaded back, you know, 40 years ago. And, uh, uh, it works out quite well for us. If they legalized lead right now, <laughs> would, would you be able to make a better load with lead than no. with your bismuth? You think bismuth is no. better than lead overall? Well, lead doesn't belong in our environment. So, but that that being not... but that that being taken out of the equation. Oh yeah, I mean obviously the denser the metal, the the better it is to an extent. I mean there's kind of like a there's a point of no return. Like at what point are you just spending money to create a heavier pellet and at you know what does it deliver so like i struggle with this whole tss thing and the, the turkey guys and even the tss waterfowl loads because you're unless you want to be like routinely taking shots well beyond 50 yards routinely there really isn't a benefit in shooting anything other than our bismuth shells and i guess i'm a little bit I'm a little bit uh, judgmental or partial, but I mean, I've taken shots at hunkers, you know, that I don't even want to talk about the yardages and killed them clean, like way dead by the time they hit the ground with a two and three quarter inch shell. So I guess you could do that with a, a tungsten 18 gram per centimeter shell, like in a number seven shot. But when it's five bucks or eight bucks a squeeze, is it really that much better? Is it that much deadlier? And the limitations you run into with tungsten, just like you do with steel, you're still dealing with <clears throat> the pressure issues that you create with um, that hard shot. So I think what we've got with this bismuth load is like the perfect balance of performance and value. And what I really like about it, obviously it's non-toxic, you know, we can alloy the tin and bismuth in our shop here in Bridgman. We can manufacture this stuff in our plant, uh -huh. plant and then load them all here. So we've got a lot of control over product quality that, you know, guys that are buying their steel shot or tungsten shot out of China, you really don't know what you're going to get until it arrives in your warehouse. So let's, uh, let's take a step towards talking about chokes. Um, so... Yep. I know with the bismuth and the lead, you want to maybe have a different choke strategy than you do with steel. So can you talk on that a little bit? Yeah, and that's that goes back to that whole pellet deformation that takes place at, at they call it setback. Setback is that time from when the powder ignites until your payload starts moving. That's setback, right? So these pellets will dimple a little bit. They look like a golf ball depending on, you know, what, if it's in the middle of, shot if it's sitting on the top if it's against the wad they will deform so what happens there is being that you're dealing with a less than perfectly round ball it's not going to travel as straight it's still going straight but what it requires is for you to choke it a little bit tighter than you would steel to keep it uniformly going the right direction downrange and the beauty of this stuff is you can't over choke it. I mean, you can, 
you start running big shot through a turkey choke and you get horrible patterns because the pattern just opens up because you're creating so much deformation through the choke tube, not at setback, that you're you're causing flyers. Where steel shot doesn't move at all. And the biggest thing people struggle with with steel shot is getting the pellets out of the wad. <clears throat> I can't tell you when I'm in Arkansas and I'm in a field where we're shooting snows, I start picking up wads. You wouldn't believe how many of them still have, you know, BB steel pellets, a nice ring of them, five of them sitting in the bottom of that wad. Um, you, so what these guys do is they make the wad stripping chokes that help separate the wad from the from the steel. Or guys are making these uh, wads that you know have fins on them to try to create drag so it separates. And and the more variables you introduce into a shot shell slash gun choke design the more potential failure modes you have. So like I said, this is like old school lead. We've dumbed it way down. We're using really good, really clean powder, and we're loading these things like the old school hunting lead shells were with a product that's almost as dense as lead. So you can choke it however you want. You can shoot it however you want, and you get you know consistent performance shell to shell. So Elliot and I both shoot either improved, modified, or, or modified most of the time. So is it just as simple as step in one, choke tighter, and you'll get good performance, or or what is well, the... When people call, I ask them, like, what is the max distance? First off, I ask them what they're shooting, what, you know, what are they hunting, and what is the maximum distance that they feel proficient taking a shot at? And then we choke from there. So... Your guy that says, man, I only shoot everything in the timber at 20 yards or no more than 30 yards. Well, he's going to be different than the guy that's going to be shooting in a cornfield you know, at 40 plus. So you've got to choke it according to what kind of shots you take, what you're comfortable taking, you know, so on and so forth. So let me ask you, like, you're improved, modified or modified. <clears throat> if you ask me shooting steel with a modified, you're probably – you know, 30 yards and in from almost all your shots. Yeah, that's correct. So if you're 30 yards and in for almost everything, here's the other thing too, man. Like what bothers me a lot is wounded animals and cripples. Like when people that I follow on social media that I've got respect for, you know, whether they're photographers or uh, outfitters or whoever, when they post pictures of dogs bringing back a bird with its neck still up, I'll private message them and say, dude, what are you doing that for? You know, why not take the, the bird, finish it off, then put it back in your dog's mouth, to take a picture. That animal wasn't born to suffer. So you could spend an extra 15, 15 seconds to you know grab an image. It's low class. So I'm kind of soft when it comes to like animal cruelty so what I like doing is shooting a full choke. So I run a factory full regardless. That's how I was raised. I learned how to shoot trap with an 870 Wingmaster 30-inch fixed full choke. So what you get with a full choke is a tighter pattern. You have longer range lethality. But what you have up close are clean misses or clean kills. Even at 50 yards with a full choke, you're either going to hit that bird and it's coming down or you're not. And 
learning that, you know, roughly, what is it? Uh, Four million migratory birds are crippled every single hunting season is staggering and it puts me in a really bad mood. Hmm. So I'm going to recommend, even if you're shooting them at 30 yards, run a full choke. You're either going to hit them or you're not. But let me ask you, like, you shoot improved, modified, or modified. Why is that? So you tell me, why Why are you choosing to shoot that that kind of choke? I'm choosing to shoot that choke because of the, the research that I've done that shows the little charts of um, where it's in the green, where it's in the yellow, where it's in the red. I want to kill birds with inside of 40 yards. So the charts and the information I'm looking at says that a modified choke mathematically is going to perform better than a full choke. Right. And you're getting your information from where? Anything I can pull up with an internet search. <laughs> yep. So, and that's that's the that's the answer, and that's what everyone was saying when we were talking to them six months ago. Okay. I think what we've been able to do is have more people shoot paper and actually pattern their gun in the last from like September, October through December than anyone's done in probably the last 15 years on social media, internet, Facebook, whatever. We've had people shooting cardboard like obsessively and I'm OCD and it was even a bit much for me. Like there was a guy that was on the boss fan page that was putting up so many patterns of this shotgun, this choke, this load, this shotgun, this choke, this load. I felt bad for him. His name's Aaron Carter. I'm like, dude, you've blown through like almost an entire case of shells shooting cardboard in order for everyone to see this. So I mailed him another case, you know, it's kind of a thank you. And like, that's awesome, but you deserve to go shoot some of these at animals instead of at paper. So what people see is with our stuff, shooting that factory full choke is giving them like super high percentage patterns at 30 yards and 40 yards in a 30 inch circle. <clears throat> and I don't like the idea of having this open choke that you know, you're, you might be, you know, have, uh, you know, lethal quote unquote lethal pellets over a 40 inch circle versus a 20 inch circle. I like to think that when I pull the trigger at a duck or a goose, I just became its executioner, right? Like I'm the guy chopping its head off or I'm the guy pushing the button on the electric chair. That's, that's my job. And I like dispatching them as quickly and as cleanly as possible. And I like to think that when I'm shooting geese and they're in close, I like putting it on, well, regardless, if I'm goose hunting, I put it on their head and neck. I shoot fives at geese and I've shot like 60 yards plus with fours and fives. You couldn't do that with a modified choke. Just too much air in there. But if you pull the trigger and you miss, you just miss that whole bird. There's not a single pellet that went in it that's going to cause a crippling wound later on, you know, 15 minutes or three days later. You hit them clean or you miss them clean. Kind of like Chris Kyle, you know, the shooting sniper, you know, the American sniper. Clean miss, clean kill. Awesome. So I think, uh, and I think that right there, if we get more guys that that 
rely on like their own proficiency shooting patterning their own gun they become more proficient with that weapon and can make cleaner more educated kills because they know exactly what's going to happen when they pull the trigger so and if i'm shooting if i'm shooting your fives yep. and i'm killing ducks hovering over the spinner at 15 yards and i'm using a full <clears throat> choke pull up and give them half the pattern that's what i do so you feel I know like how that's that proficient at 15 yards too, that it's acceptable at 15 yards of the full choke with I have yet to harvest a duck that we could not eat. Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, like, like I said, if they're coming in and their wings are set, they're backpedaling, coming in over that spinner, pull up and put it, put it, you know, half a bird length over their above their head, and you'll still give them the bottom half your pattern, you know, right in the head and you don't blow them up at all. My hesitancy to go to a full choke is not what you're saying. My hesitancy to go to a full choke is the distance of shots that people take. And they're running these extreme full chokes, and it's becoming more and more acceptable to take 55-plus yard shots on a consistent basis. And when well, people are asking me the choke that I use, I hate just to say that it's a full choke because of the implications. Just Yeah. And, not, and I think yes there's there's a lot of that especially with social media everyone wants to be the big swinging dick and look what i did with this or that or you know me it's kind of a thing i was i was raised on a fixed full choke gun the male ego in me thinks that anything less than a full choke is like cheating so when i shoot sporting clays or i shoot trap i shoot a full choke my eight-year-old shoots a full choke and that's how we do it um but I think any sportsman who's going to take a shot at a range that he's not comfortable with or proficient at shouldn't be hunting in the first place. Yeah. So that, that kind of goes there. along with the narrative as well. I mean, that's, this is, these are products that are built by avid duck hunters for duck hunters. And like I was talking earlier today about our boss Tom load, you know, we're not, we're not catering that shot shell to the turkey hunting market per se, we're making that load for duck hunters who shoot turkeys in the off season. You know, that's what that product's for. But awesome. there again, like the whole proficiency thing, like I can't get my head around shooting turkeys at 80 yards with TSS number nines. I can't, I can't do it, but do I have a problem shooting a goose at 55? Heck no. I'd like them to be in close, but when it's end of January and these things have been beaten on since September, and they get hinky, you know, at 50 yards, they want to land shorter your decoys that your decoys spread ends at 30, but their wings set coming in and you know, they're going to land, but they're going to short you by about 20 yards. I'm going to take that shot 10 times out of 10, because I know what I'm capable of doing with that shot shell, that gun, that choke. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, and the other thing too, like, I've patterned with more open chokes, but I guess I really haven't seen a need to do it. You know, I'm not into blowing ducks up. I've had one, we've had one guy that was diver hunting in Lake St. Clair with number fours. And he shot a bluebill at like 25 yards and ripped the bird in half, like bad because he hit it low. I mean, he took the bottom half of the bird out. He could still salvage the breast meat, but the bottom half of the duck was gone. Mm -hmm. 
So again, like I like to believe that, you know, as an executioner, I'm operating with the precision of like a surgeon's scalpel. That's how I like to think I'm taking those shots. And I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you, I mean, I can, I can stretch a couple limits out of a box of shells if, you know, if need be. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think all these guys need to get to that point, you know, start shooting, you know, sporting clays, get out there in the summertime and shoot some trap or go try skeet, you know, learn what you're capable of doing on paper at targets. So when you go out in the field, you know, you're, you're a better hunter, have more success. And the other thing too, you extend your season a hell of a lot longer if you can shoot more often in the summertime. How many shells do you take with you on a typical duck hunt? <clears throat> well, that's not a fair question. Cause I always bring enough for everybody to shoot, but for late season goose hunt, I'll take two boxes. So 40 shells and you know, I get my three birds with, I don't know, four shells, maybe five. It ain't hard. It's not hard. Awesome. Well, I think right now is probably a good point to jump right into the lightning round. Uh, lightning okay. rounds, quick questions, quick answers, and uh, just kind of going over some of uh, the most asked questions for duck hunters. So, uh, When did you gun- guys generate this list of questions? Oh, uh, about a year ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, what what uh, shotgun do you shoot? I shoot a Benelli Super Black Eagle, number one. Oh, nice. For now. Awesome. That's what and my dad's that... been shooting for years. He's about ready to retire from hunting, and when he does, that sucker's going on my wall. <laughs> yep. And is that uh, – yep. what? what's your dream gun? Ask Jordan after we hang up. <laughs> All right. Right, Jordan? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, what size shot do you shoot? Uh, I shoot them all only because I'm still doing the research and development thing, but I shoot twos, threes, fours, and fives, uh, mainly fours and fives. If I only had one shell I could ever hunt with the rest of my days, it would probably be the number five. And would that be the same for ducks and geese? Yeah, because if I I only shoot one shell, that'd be it. I mean, I've shot shot geese with number twos at 30 yards, and I've made them do backflips, and it's, like, demoralizing how hard they get hit. Um, That's, like, center mass. So if I shoot anything bigger, if I shoot a three or four, I'm shooting for the body. If I shoot a uh, number four or number five, I'm taking headshots. And awesome. for teal, you're cool. You're good with fives for teal as well. Sevens, if you want to shoot teal, we don't get a really. Our teal season sucks because the birds are never here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've had guys that shoot sevens at teal and they absolutely love it. But again, nothing wrong with the boss five. Sweet. And then uh, for length of shell, two and three quarter, three inch, or three and a half. Two and three quarter, man. Two and three quarter. I've shot the three inch stuff. Um, late season and it's just payload. I mean, all this is a little few more pellets, but do you really need that many if you're shooting number five and have a whole pile of them, 197 of them in an ounce? You don't really need that many. <laughs> um, uh, ducks or geese for your preference on hunting? Oh man, that's a tough one. You want a quick answer in the lightning round? Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> say ducks, ducks right. over water, geese in the field. There you go. And uh, favorite terrain to hunt in? 
I love cornfields, man. I love me a cornfield, a sweet cornfield in September or a snow covered one in January. Awesome. And layouts or A-frames? Oh, <laughs> man. It, <laughs> where are we hunting? Um, let's go uh, cornfield. If I got a rock pile, I'll go in an A-frame. If I'm sitting in the, in the middle of a field, I got to be in a layout. All right. Uh, face paint or no face paint? No. No face paint. Okay. No. No camouflage for this guy either. <laughs> what do you do? I, grew up on camo. I work car hard, man. Car hearts okay. are, you know, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Blue collar tr- uh, through and through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've got the high dollar stuff. I've had cheap stuff. And I don't know, man. Like <clears throat> when traffic's going in one direction, I like going the opposite way. I like being different. I think uh, boss is different. I think a lot of, well, I know a lot of people said that we're stupid for trying to jump into the ammunition business with as cutthroat as it is, but I take that as a challenge. So I, I like being different, you know, in all aspects. And I think going back to the old school, you know, one piece coverall Carhartt type deal reminds me of when my dad used to take me goose hunting when I was four or five years old. And, you know, me being nostalgic, I mean, that's, that's where it's at in my in my world. Awesome. Am I forgetting anything on that list, Elliot? I don't think so. All right. And one thing we got to talk about before we jump off, uh, something new you guys got going on. Tell us a little bit about the Boss Tom shells. Boss Tom. Okay. Everybody wants tungsten for their turkey loads. And I would say better than 95% of, well, I'm not going to say 95%. 100% of TSS, so if you go to the store and you see a box of TSS, that stuff came 100% direct from China. Sold by one or two people from China. So knowing that, us being an American-made company, I wanted to be able to come up with something that, like, again, for the duck hunter who has to have this tungsten load for turkeys, we needed to come up with a U.S.-made shot for you know, that heavy payload, move it slow, hit like a hammer, uh, turkey load. So we found a couple different vendors in the U.S. here that manufacture a tungsten pellet. And the way that it's made here in the States has to be made a certain way because this TSS movement that everyone seems to be so thrilled with operates on a patent that is filed in the United States by the Chinese, but none of the manufacturing is done here. So if anybody wanted to try to manufacture shot in the manner in which TSS is made, they'd be in violation of a patent, which I think is kind of funny because we all know that you take a U.S. patent or a global patent and file it in China, and the Chinese government says, well, we don't give a shit about that patent. We can copy it and do whatever we want. But the Chinese get those protections here in the U.S. that the Americans do not get in their country. So that said, we found a a centered product that is pressed together like a aspirin um, or vitamin. You know, you take powder, you pack it together, and then you run it through a furnace at high temperature and you center it, which is like not quite melting, but it's it's almost at melting temperature. So it fuses the metal together. So a lot of things are made out of centered metal that no one even knows about. One of them is like 
connecting rods for all your a lot of your engines nowadays. It's all centered. Um, part of that, the limitation with that process is being that you're taking metal powder and trying to fill it into a cavity to press it into shape. You can only make it so small. And the smallest that you can really get is like a number six because it gets to be really hard to fill the tool and, and have good tool life when you're dealing with teeny tiny little components and trying to make many, many of them at a time. So we take a number six and then we polish it down and get it to about a number six and a half size shot. And part of that is we're increasing the density because we're not removing material so much as we're kind of like hammering it tighter. So you, you have the same weight of a number six, but its density increases because the size shrinks. So six and a half is a shot size, again, to be different. Um, we're moving it at a good velocity that allows it to be lethal at distance, but still hold the pattern together. And, you know, it patterns really well. Again, it's got good powder that that stays at a good pressure for running, you know, reliably down guns. And it's super lethal stuff. But again, it's expensive. Um, it's still cheaper than TSS. If you look and see what some of these guys are selling their Chinese tungsten for, I think we're half the price with an American-made product. Um, but there's a lot of guys that said, hey, Brandon, I love the, the branding on Boss Tom. The box looks cool. I love the vibe. But I'm just going to shoot Boss Fives at turkeys. I'm like, cool, dude. I do it all the time. That's that's the way to go. Awesome. Yeah. Some good stuff. For sure. So I, I guess uh, one thing I can say for you, uh, after talking to you multiple times, you're a smart dude, you're a crazy dude, and uh, looks like you guys got one heck of a product over there at Boss Shot Sale. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, we're having so much fun with this, and yes, it's a business. Yes, we've got people that are working full-time for the company, but you know, everyone that's ever been through here knows that you know the, the whole Boss thing is just a very small part of what we've got here at the main company, my metal finishing business. And we're able to kind of have fun with this and not be so stressed out on like trying to run and, you know, maximize margins and cover overhead and this and that, because we're paying all of our bills through the other company and, you know, in hopes of being able to launch this product the right way, sell it for a very good price that everyone can afford. And I say, you know, companies that run their, their business by looking in the, you know, at the bottom line are like, is the same as driving a car by looking in the rearview mirrors. You know, before you know it, the bumper's gone, the engine's overheating because the radiator's blown out, you got no headlights, you know, that kind of thing. And the way I run our business is always have is, you know, my profit or the company's profit will come when all of the critical factors for success are met. And we are in control of all of those. So customer satisfaction, product quality, you know, value that you can deliver in terms of price or, you know, experience or education. You know, those are all things that we need to complete before we have been what I deem to be a successful business. So we're totally different that we're not selling this to make a buck right away. Our profit days won't come until we've got way more people shooting this stuff but we have zero intention of raising the prices. If anything else, I hope to be able to lower these prices a little bit as our economies of scale improve with better buying power on components or metal. So yeah, it's been a fun ride. It's going to be a fun ride and 
you know, we're doing it for the right reason, I think. And it's, it's going to be a great success in the future. We just need a little bit more time and a lot more people shooting the stuff. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and, uh, we can't wait to see yeah. where boss shot show goes in the future. Um, let everyone yep. know where they can find you on social media, on the website. Uh, so what is that BossShotShells.com. We're currently constructing a new website in the off season, but for the time being, the one we have is functional. Uh, Instagram is at boss shot shells. We've got a Facebook page and then my buddy, Justin O'Brien's got the uh, boss shot shell fan page, which is where a lot of that interactive, you know, Facebook content is shared back and forth. So that's definitely a good one to check out is that fan page. And I think we've got, what do we have? Uh, 2,800 members on it, which is kind of cool. So. Awesome. Any final words, Elliot? No, I'm just really thrilled and excited to see where your company goes. Very, very interesting information. You're obviously extremely schooled and knowledgeable. And I, I like that um, you're so into all the finite details of everything. I think that's really cool. Really, really yeah. And American made as well. Yeah. So let's uh, yeah. go ahead and wrap this one up. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and Brandon from Boss Shot Shell. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, fellas. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in for another episode. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we did. A couple quick reminders for you guys before we sign out on the podcast. Make sure to check out the link in the show notes for Boss Shells um, and see them over there on their website. Also, Bailey's Game Calls, we got a giveaway going on. Um, that he's putting on it's on all the facebook groups or pages for me elliot and the podcast so jump over there give it a like give it a share and get your chance to win a a game call um also make sure to drop us a review over on itunes it really helps us out a ton and we really appreciate your feedback we read every single one so when you when you give us that five star or whatever whatever star you think we deserve you know leave your written feedback as well we really appreciate it anything you want to see different or see the same on the podcast just let us know all right guys that's all we got for this week i'm jordan from duck gun chronicles and we'll see you guys next time let's go